that question really struck me. I was like, oh God, what's he going to say to that? I'm looking at the rabbi and the rabbi's like, well, we just don't believe that. And my heart sank to the bottom. My conception of reality itself as this thing that was created by this concept that I had of God fell away to ash. We aspire to become awakened beings, to live in harmony with the truth of life. From Vast Noodle Media, I'm Trent Bell. This is Knowing and Believing, a podcast about how we believe. Welcome to another episode of Knowing and Believing. I'm very excited to have Taylor Lang. Taylor has gone through deconstructing faith, but he has gone through an academic background that gives him a lot of insight, and he can apply that to his own personal experience. Right. So I think that will be pretty cool. Uh, right As of right now, I'm a PhD candidate. I have a master's degree in geography with a graduate certificate in evolutionary studies. And during my master's degree, I started studying the human dimensions of geography and how humans relate to each other over space, particularly how religious groups relate to each other over space and with their environment and with the environment and like the concept of the environment in general. So I was in a lab that specialized in evolutionary science under a gentleman by the name of David Sloan Wilson. So that was where I got my start in evolutionary science and cultural evolutionary science. And now I study groups of humans and how cooperation emerges in those groups Knowing how all that functions through evolutionary sociology, anthropology, those kind of things, yep. very informative to that. And it it tells you a lot about religion. But uh, in this first part of it, I just wanted to give you the space to just kind of share your story and, and how, how that journey has been. Okay. The story, I mean, obviously starts out when I was a much younger fellow than I am now. Um, my, Easy now. <laughs> my, uh, my parents uh, took my brother and I to a Lutheran church, uh, and that's my earliest memory of going to any church. And I don't recall why we left that church. I can't. Um, I think there was some internal politics going on that my parents weren't particularly fond of. And they spent a little bit of time going out into the community. I grew up in in semi-rural upstate New York, a little town called Binghamton, and they finally settled on this church of the Wesleyan denomination, and that's where we went for, uh, you know, until I graduated high school. Which recently I found, I believe it's the Wesleyan quadrilateral, (laughs) but it's a four-part approach to belief, and one part is experience, I believe, one part is scripture, Mm -hmm. one part is logic and reason, and one part is tradition. And to me, it's a very, like, yeah, okay, all right, that, all right, a little more objective in the approach, like, you know, kind of organizing it and figuring it out rather than just feeling it out. It's interesting. I I appreciate that, but sorry. Yeah, no, so um, Wesleyanism is very close to Methodism. They ascribe to Armenian theology and not Calvinist theology, so they're very much, we have to make the choice and elect to go into salvation. So they believe in free will. Yes. Not not Calvinists, huh? No. 
I got very involved in the church community. And your parents, you would have you you would categorize your parents as very involved in the church. Or? Well, initially, yes. So this is this is kind of where my story is a little bit different than I think most people's. Um, at least most people's that I have come in contact with and that I've looked at in in the literature. My parents were involved with the church, but not to the extent that I was. And religion mm-hmm. and and faith was talked about at home, but it wasn't it wasn't a front and center issue. Most of my, you know, absorption of the Christian religion through the lens of Wesleyanism was mainly through youth group and through services and just generally being active in the church. I don't remember exactly how old I was, but so my mom left the church before my father and I did. And she left, um, you know, she was having some, some theological issues. And then eventually it came down to the pastor at the time had everybody uh, in the sanctuary break up into groups and into prayer groups uh, for the specific purpose of praying for the homosexuals in our community and praying for their salvation and praying that they come back to, to a more heterosexual lifestyle. Exactly. A more heterosexual lifestyle. And at that moment, my mom had a bit of a crisis and she, uh, you know, she told me this is much later on. Um, you know, this, this, this whole conversation between her and my father happened, away from at least me I don't know if my brother was was in on it my brother's about six years older than I am she was finally like I can't can't do this I can't do this anymore I can't I can't keep going to this church I feel too uncomfortable and it was specifically this pray the gay away issue yeah so members of faith communities are not entirely homogeneous in their the ways that they practice there were there were a lot of people within this church that were very loving and caring and accepting folks but there were other folks that were exceptionally judgmental and the way that my mom you know she was a bit more liberal than everybody else she's an educator she's a teacher um and she she was feeling judgment from you know a lot of the the people that were more judgmental in the church and it was kind of starting to weigh on her and at this point this was a pivotal moment where she stepped back and was like i can't do this anymore so my father and i kept going and again i didn't find out until later that he really only kept going because i was so involved Hmm. which is which kind of blew my mind at the time i was like wow when i when i first found that out i was super touched even though you know i had already had falling out with people in the church and i had already left and right and i was like wow there's a lot of things that could have been avoided if you had just stopped going as well but you know he he you know he cared enough about me and my relationships within the church that he kept going right and so that was right you know, I was amazed and very, very grateful for that, right. um, that he would do that. So I would say that of my immediate family, I was the most involved in the church. Hmm. I was very heavily involved with the youth group, and I've made a lot of very close friendships with a lot of people in, in that church. Then I get to high school, and before I preface this, I want to start by saying that in many church cultures, certain norms are enforced more than others. In my church, my youth group was very male-dominated. It's pretty much just guys and the youth group leader and his wife. And so that experience became tailored towards enforcing 
sexual norms in the context, specifically talking about an abstinence-only approach right. to to sex. Which, if you're taking a group of 15 teenage boys, I mean, the just, number one thing on their minds are just sex, sex, sex. You know, exactly. I mean, it's like just it's set just off a big old hormone bomb. bomb in their yeah, exactly. Head. I mean, yeah. I don't mean to say that their focus was just uniformly around. It was primary. It was, it was, the, a very, it, was a, it was a primary concern of theirs. It was a common thing they kept coming back exactly. to. Exactly. It was a very, it was a common sure. thread. And very specific about sexual practices and relationship practices. Relationships weren't expressly forbidden. All right. Kids are going to be kids. They're going to, they're going to get in relationships. Let's right. just try to make sure that they're. And I think that's pretty common for a yeah. lot of, um, for a lot of conservative Christian denominations. Exactly. And, and you know, we kind of got into peer pressure towards being anti-peer pressure. So that's a, that's a funky <laughs> right. way to explain where you're, yeah. you know, I'm a part of multiple groups. I'm right. I mean, they're, they're basically group. saying, we're going to pressure you to not succumb to peer pressure exactly. of a differing view. Right. And, you know. and that particularly had to do with things in the area of sex uh, but also drugs, drinking, sure. partying, the general debauchery of teenagers. I, I'm kind of a consensus person. I'm a people pleaser, and I don't really like to ruffle many feathers. So if I have a differing opinion, I might hint at it. Mm-hmm. Um, unless I have a differing opinion that like, I'm willing to die on a hill about. Right. But I wasn't willing, really, to die on a hill over... Um, my views on what was or wasn't appropriate in relationships and i wasn't willing to die on a hill about whether or not it was okay to have a couple drinks when i'm 16 years old or whether or not it's okay to smoke a joint like that's not i'm not going to die on that hill in a youth group setting mm-hmm. i'm just gonna keep quiet when those subjects come up and i'm gonna do my own thing right so that's a roundabout way of saying i kind of lost my way probably a little bit uh mid high school Started backsliding. Yeah, exactly. Is is vernacular the right word? Yeah. (laughs) And what this did was created a tension between two major parts of my life. I have my friends in youth group, and these relationships are pretty strong. And there are very specific things that I do when I hang out with my friends from youth group, but I try my best to keep those lives separate from the other life. And that includes my life with my family specifically, and my life with... And when I say my family, I mean my life with my cousins. I have a couple cousins that are right around my age. They, they were, were not Wesleyan youth group material? No. Or? So they weren't. <laughs> they, so they're, they're both firm believers in a generalized Christian tradition, but mm-hmm. not church-going folk. Right. We'll say that. So their, their relationship with spirituality and religion is, is, I think, much more personal, or at least at that point was much more personal, you know, reading of scripture and interpreting it themselves with their right. parents and stuff, whereas mine was much more institutionalized. In that familial context, I kind of drifted towards alcohol, specifically with my cousins, and then also with my friends from high school. So I have this tension between these two groups where I'm not hiding my spiritual side and my religious side from the groups of people in my high school and my cousins. Right, because they're accepting. And it, you could have been friends with those friends and not drank or whatever else, and they probably just would have been like, oh, whatever, fine. Exactly. But in, in the other group, in the youth group, I put on a mask. You had to hide a lot. I had to hide a lot. 
And mainly because I didn't, uh, I wasn't particularly armed with any sort of rational justification based on scripture for my behavior. Right. It was just me being like, I didn't see it as a super big deal. Like it was, according to all the rules and like according to like the unspoken rules of my family, I was being safe and responsible in in the context of of what I was doing. Mm -hmm. But the entire time I'm wearing this mask, it's starting to wear on me. And it's starting to really wear very heavily on me because I'm feeling I'm feeling more and more like I'm not being myself and I'm not standing up for what, you know, how I'm feeling that. And I, it sounds like you're saying that it's it's not that you're you're like we got to drink occasionally and responsibly as much as it's just like I need to be honest about who I am and what I do and not hi- I don't want to be a person that's hiding things about me to fit into a group right that's more of the real exactly issue. yes so finally gets to my senior year of high school and uh, so my my views on alcohol are entirely different uh my views on drugs are entirely different and when i say drugs i'm just talking about like weed small scale recreational stuff and and my views on sex had changed slightly in in what i thought was appropriate to have in relationships and what it wasn't i was still very much an abstinence person and like my view during senior year was I'm not going to have sex until i'm married and i'm going to get married young just so i can have sex and that is a terrible that's, reason that to get like, married. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, that's a terrible mindset to have. But when you're in the mind of a teenage kid who's been constantly yeah. repressing yeah. that part of his brain, you just yeah, you're gonna, it, it just puts you're it pushes people and, into exactly, yeah. and it and it and it can push people into. Um, those types of situations. Yeah. Good enough. Let's get married quick, please. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So senior year comes and I decide that I'm going to finally take my mask off. To your youth group. Yes. To, to, to a couple people in my youth group. Not the whole youth group. There were only a few people within the youth group that I was particularly close to. And so I was kind of like, those were who I was hiding from most because I was fearful of any type of rebuke that I knew would come from this. Right. Because I knew the stance and I knew the repercussions. But at that point, I was going to college and I was like, I got to stop this. I got to stop hiding this. Because if I'm going to college, everybody and their sister was getting on Facebook at this point. Like it was becoming a huge internet phenomenon. So it was going to get harder and harder for me to hide anything like that. (laughs) Filtering pictures after pictures. Exactly. So I went and told a couple of them. So now before you get into that, the value and the draw the the magnetism in your youth group yep is it god is it jesus is it the group is it the the very close friendships that you had with a few people in there what's the main thing in there you think because there's obviously an emotional weight there that you're feeling a conflict that you're not being honest with right was it which which one of those factors was it mostly in your mind or what do you think that's a really good question. Looking back on it from a subjective point of view, like my own personal experience of what was going on in my mind at the time, I think I, I, I felt like one silly little memory I have is um, I was at a party at one of my friend's houses and I went to the bathroom and I was washing my hands and I, I kind of looked in the mirror and I'm a little buzzed. So it might have just been the alcohol, alcohol playing games in my head. Right. But I kind of looked in the mirror and I was just kind of like, 
God, we're cool, right? And like, I just kind of got a warm feeling over me. Like, you're not being an idiot. You're fine. And so that that subjective ex- experience is it kind of led me to interpret it, and and it entirely could have been the chemicals. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna deny that for a second. Uh, you know, I know what alcohol does to the brain. <laughs> I know what it what kind of effects that it has on us. Right. So I didn't have a ton of guilt wrapped up in it, and the guilt was wrapped up in not telling my friends these things and not mm. being honest. Like that was really where the guilt and the tension right, was. Right. So I, I go and I have a, a few conversations with some friends, and um, the thing that really. And so exactly, basically exactly what I thought was going to happen, happened. But I did not anticipate the emotional reaction that I had from it. So I, I go and I have these conversations and I kind of like lay it all out. I'm like, listen, I've been, you know. And these are your accountability partners. Exactly. I think, they're and, like, and these are the kind of people that were like, we're going to, you know, you know, guys, we got to keep each other accountable. Voluntary moral police. Exactly. Right. And, and you so have been breaking the law. I had been doing exactly that. You know, I, I told them everything about, you know, the going to parties and the kind of some of the questioning stuff around the church itself. Because I had been, you know, even in high school, I had been kind of tossing around ideas of, you know, how does the theory of evolution fit in with religion and stuff right. like now, that. Now, are Wesleyans a literal six-day creation kind of deal? <sighs> you have some, you don't have some. Really? So, yeah, so uh, particularly... That's liberating. Yeah, so um, <laughs> I used to be a young earth creationist. Yep. And then it was actually someone in the church, and it was one of my friends, he was a leader in the church. It was in, it was in 10th grade. We had an enriched bio. We started talking about evolution. And... Now, knowing what I know about like theories of how life came about from non-life, the the description they have is, was was a little old, but it was the up-to-date science at the time. Uh, and I remember both myself and other friends who were Christians within my high school circle just being like, this is all bull. This is ridiculous. Right. And then I went to youth group that night, and this leader was like, why, why, is, it, why is it bull? Why can't they coexist? You know, why do, why do origins matter that much if, if the story of Jesus is... And I, I might be paraphrasing, I don't remember his exact words, but this is an approximation of what it was. You know, why does the story of Jesus have to be mutually exclusive with the theory of evolution? And that right. gave me a little bit of theological leeway to be like, oh... Like, I had never really thought about it that much because... And up until this, this leader had come into, come into the church, the majority of the training... You know, the mental conditioning is evolution's a ridiculous theory. There's no way it happened. There's all these holes. There's always holes in scientific theory anyways. I keep trying to tell people that to that level, but it's like, this is where the evidence points, and right. let's let's find where we can shoot holes in this. Sure, exactly, you know? and, and that's, that's a good approach with science. And that's what that's what really the scientific, uh, you know, the scientific method is all about. That, and specifically, um, you know, if you talk to any academic, myself included, they're gonna badmouth the peer review process, where you send out your your paper, manuscript, your experiment, whatever, your write up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, two or three anonymous reviewers read it, but 
they're reading it specifically to try to poke holes in it right. and to try and find out, you know, such this, a good thing. This is how <laughs> this is not, you know, this part of your argument doesn't make sense. That's an inappropriate statistical method to use to analyze this particular data. Right. This Statistics model is not are right. A foggy art. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, the science has these built-in mechanisms of trying to determine, trying to keep as much human bias out as possible. And a little right. bit sleeps, seeps in because science itself is a human creation. Sure. Um, that's just tried and tested and true and happens to uncover um, quite a few objective facts about the universe. Which is great. Yeah. So that's where I kind of evolution kind of came into my my own theology um, at the time. Going back to the story, I'm you know I'm talking with these friends. I'm saying this is my view on on partying and alcohol. I don't think it's that big a deal as long as you're being safe. This is my view on sex. It's changed. I don't think that certain actions in relationships are wrong. You know, up until the point of of actually having sex. The reaction was exactly what you'd expect. Older me, kind of having some hindsight. I'm a little ambivalent about this now, but I used to be like, God, I wish I could go back and tell my my younger self to just like let that pride go and just like let the relationship fizzle out. But that was a definitive moment because after, you know, after the last of those conversations were had, that was, you know, I didn't go back to that church. Mainly because I was going to college three or four days later, mm-hmm. um, five hours away. But I was not prepared for the... Uh, the the emotional reaction to that rebuke that I experienced. Your emotional reaction. Exactly. Yeah. And that emotional response to that rebuke triggered the feeling of God's rebuke as well. Right. So I, you know, during my first semester uh, at college, I struggled really, really hard with depression and anxiety and feelings of guilt and shame to the point where I had to, like, I had to transfer back to the university in my hometown because I just couldn't, you know, I was too far away from everyone. I transfer back and the, on the heels of this depression comes anger and resentment, as it often does. Mm-hmm. I felt wronged for expressing my own opinion I felt wronged for uh, not feeling like I was accepted just because I had some different views on, on you know, <laughs> which, you know, in hindsight, of course, I, this was going to happen because this was like priority number one was right. making sure that I wasn't engaging in any sort of sexual promiscuity or behavior. Right. And I mean, it was it was akin to, you know, going to a Wesleyan church and saying, ah, I think Jesus was a hack. And exactly. You know, at yeah. that point, it's just like. Right. So it's um, I kind of take this this anger and resentment towards personal relationship uh, in these personal res- relationships. And I turned them on the institution of the church as a whole, mm. because it's easier, I think, for us to conceptualize our anger at the system that created the, that relational tension rather than the interpersonal issues you had. Right. And, and to be like, you know, you wronged me. This is ridiculous. How could you, you know, how could you do right. this to me? How could, and there was, there was betrayal felt on my side, and I'm sure looking back, um, there was betrayal felt on all sides. I started getting into, uh, I started studying religion itself. Not from an evolutionary point of view, but I started from a philosophical point of view. So I started taking philosophy classes as I was, uh, as I was studying this and studying religion. The entire time, I'm just kind of like getting amped up as like, uh, especially studying uh, 
the food system when I was an undergrad and views espoused by prominent faith leaders about, you know, how we shouldn't be worried about things like climate change or global warming or how Mm. we shouldn't be worried about how much uh, resources we use because this earth was given to us to use as we please. And I I began to get really, really angry at this kind of because this is this, in my view, ran entirely counterintuitive to my interpretation of the gospel. Yeah, even even a biblical point of view. Like, right. It's just such a Yeah. And, you know, Pope Francis would agree with me on that yeah. one. Which was which is which was kind of vindicating for me at the time. This is going on throughout my my undergraduate career. You know, I start to get more into I start to embrace more the college lifestyle and you know, not going too crazy, but just, you know, within reasonable bounds of, of Reasonable amounts of oats were sown. Well, <laughs> I, okay. Yeah, I guess you could say it that way. But um, And then I met a professor who was teaching environmental planning, and he was a geography professor. And I got along really well with him. And when I was in my senior year, I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. I could try to get a job with a nonprofit. And then he came along and he was like, how would you like to come on and do a master's degree and do some some research? So I I get into this graduate program to do my master's degree. I get this idea that I'm going to do this thesis research project on churches and how they can contribute to the local food system. The mental processes that led to this were, you know, I'd be driving around my city and there's something like 214 or 217 churches in Binghamton. They all have really big lawns. And especially when you're in a rural setting and you see a bunch of churches, it's usually just a building, the giant parking lot, a playground or something, a pavilion, maybe a softball field, and just this giant green lawn that's doing nothing but soaking up liquid nitrogen to make it look greener. Right. So my brilliant idea was I'm going to try and survey these churches and see how willing they would be to engage with that green space and grow gardens there to feed the local food pantry. Because I thought that that would be a great way to enhance the local food movement and while simultaneously engaging in the churches and Jesus's commandment of feed my sheep, feed the poor. So I thought this was a genius idea. And my professor had no idea what to do with it. <laughs> Specifically because he's a, what's called a physical geographer. He deals more with invasive aquatic species and indicators of sustainability. And he does a lot with like large scale areas looking at how ecosystems and habitats are evolving over time. So he turns me on to this guy who trained his advisor. So he was the academic, what's called the academic grandson of this guy. And this guy was David Sloan Wilson, Mm -hmm. who was a professor at Binghamton at the time. And he had originally written a uh, a book in 2002 entitled Darwin's Cathedral, Evolution, Religion, and the Nature of Society. And I gave a presentation on my idea for a thesis in this class and his lab. They invited me in and I became a part of David's lab. And so I kind of give this pitch to the whole lab and they're like, okay, your idea is great. There's no way you're going to get any solid results out of it. And they're like, we've been working with the churches in this area and they have a ton of projects going on. The fact that they have a ton of projects going on and they're just, you know, they're doing their best to get these projects done. Adding another one, it's going to introduce some survey bias into your research. Why don't we take some of our existing research, add an environmental spin to it, and you can be the lead on that. So I was like, okay, that 
that's fine. So we designed a survey and the entire time that I'm doing this, you know, for anybody who's done thesis research and research of any kind, you have to read so much. I have such bad reading comprehension. <laughs> so, so you do a lot of reading and the kind of reading that I was doing was specifically on cultural evolution and how cultural evolution functioned, how cultural groups functioned, uh, how groups of human beings absorb cultural knowledge and where exactly religion fits into that. I, I get into a bunch of different types of research around environmentalism and my master's thesis had to do with this idea of observing religious texts as a form of cultural genome. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so, so let me, just to unpack that a little bit, a genome is just a fancy word for saying some species genetic code. Right. All of your DNA, all in humans, all sure. 23 chromosomes, unpacked every single gene that basically creates us and all of our organs. The funny thing is, is that every single one of our cells in our body is different despite having exactly the same genetic code, which is kind of mind-boggling when you yeah, think about it. it is. Like our skin cells and our liver cells have exactly the same genetic code, but through cellular differentiation and what's called epigenetic inheritance, the the mother cells of like the initial stem cell stem cell that gets turned on through molecular biological functions that I don't even understand pass down those those traits to their daughter cells and then eventually we grow into this right which is wild David and uh, my colleague Yasha Hartberg um, kind of spearheaded this project and they said what if we took a religious text and analyzed it as if it was a genome because it's transcribed with high fidelity. You can copy it very easily and it translates down very well. You know, the, the Bible we have has gone through many different iterations in translation, but it's essentially, you know, it's very close to the original one constructed at the Council of Nicaea. So we have this, this cultural text that informs how we behave and how we identify and what if we used that text to see if basically postulated that christianity itself is a cultural species and mm -hmm. they use the new and old testaments as their base genetic code code right and they pass this down from generation to generation not not just from parents to children but also horizontally to other people through proselytization right. and right. evangelism. And let's see if we can look at the individual denominations of the Christian church and see if we can pick up differential citation patterns and see if they're what's called cherry picking to inform their beliefs on certain subjects. And this is Differential citation patterns. We're going to have to get into that one in okay. the academic side. So, so, yeah. So, so basically, that's just a fancy way of saying, are they citing different parts of the Bible to justify their beliefs on the same issue? Uh, Yasha did this around views on homosexuality across four different churches mm. based on sermons that we could put through a text software and, and analyze and pull out their their biblical citations. I did this with environmental attitudes. I looked specifically at the Pope's encyclical, an organization called the Cornwall Alliance, which is a very um, has a very what's called dominionist mindset about the earth, and what that basically means is the resources are free for everyone to use because 
God gave us dominion over the earth so we can use it. And so we were mandated to do so. There was another group, uh, another couple groups that took a took a different approach, specifically Pope Francis and and others that basically said, no, that's not the right interpretation of these of of the scripture. The right interpretation is that we are we are here to be a part of the part of the landscape and we're here to be stewards and we're here to use the resources yes but not to excess and not to dominate over so this is the stewardship uh, mentality and we took all of these texts that they had we put them through this text software pulled out their citations and basically saw is there any statistically significant difference between where in the bible they're citing and whether or not they're citing specific verses at different rates and we found that to a pretty high statistical significance that they were using different they verses. They were using different verses and they were using the same verses at different rates. So like uh, a good a good example is Genesis 2:15 which talks about God put Adam and Eve into the garden of Eden to uh, to till it and to to keep it. And that was a very big one in the stewardship camp. Right. They also used a lot of uh, a lot of works from, uh, or they used a lot of citations from Isaiah and the Psalms, very poetic kind of um, books that talk about creation in a very positive way, in kind of exalting it. Right. And um, and the Dominionists really stuck to Genesis, and they really stuck to the first chapter of Genesis. The gist of those those verses is. I give you command over all the earth. All of this is is yours to eat and consume and to keep. And so we found that very, you know, the the differential interpretation, you know, you can try to pause out what's causing what. Is it really the Bible that's causing the view or is it something else that's causing the view and you're just using the Bible to extract it? Right. Um, you know, and that's up for, that's up for debate, what comes first and what comes second. For instance, if I have a view, if I have a dominionist view already without reading the Bible and I look through the Bible and I find verses that match up, I say, oh, here's a justification. And then I go to you who hasn't really thought, who may not have thought about this. And I say, look at these verses. Look at, look at, look at this biblical mandate. We, we have dominion over the planet. And so my transfer of that to you is my transferring of that knowledge to you is then uh, potentially, you know, if I win you over using those verses, then the causal the causal chain is uh, the text causes you to view that way in addition to my my interpretation of it. So you've inherited the, my interpretation and the scripture. Okay. And whereas my interpretation was already there, and I'm just cherry picking okay. what verses I right. want. So this, so as this goes down the line, you can have different views that where the causal chain is almost invisible, and it's it's hard to to parse out because mm. you've been you've been given the information at the same time. So it's like, oh, here's an interpretation, here's the text, and the text informs the interpretation, and the interpretation informs the text. That's one of the things I have such a hard time with spirituality and scripture being one of the four Wesleyan quadrilaterals. Yeah. Is that it's so open to interpretation. Absolutely. And contradicts itself in so many places. Right. And, you know, people argue that, well, it doesn't contradict itself if you interpret it this way. Well, is that, you know, just a conservative definition or? So there's. It's really hard. A book written in 2012 by a gentleman named Jonathan Haidt. 
It's called The Righteous Mind. Uh, his whole thing is that the human mind can kind of be split into, uh, you know, the your intuitions and your rationality. Mm-hmm. And in most cases, rationality does not lead. No. In most cases, intuition leads. Yep. And so the function of rationality, according to this evolutionary theory, and I think that there's a lot of evidence to support this evolutionary theory, he lays out a pretty good, um, pretty good argument for it in his book, is that you start with the intuition that the, that the Bible is the literal word of God, and it's infallible and it's an inerrant. But in, in reality, it's, you know, it's, you're, you're making the choice to follow you, your intuition that the book is infallible, and you're using your rational mind to justify it. So we're mm. trying to, so we're, we're using our rational mind most often to not necessarily critique our own intuitions, but to critique the intuitions of others. And oftentimes, or we look at each other's experience and we say, maybe, but have you thought of, you know, have you thought of it maybe this way? And trying to, trying to change and alter and come to like a discursive way of interpreting whatever reality is. Um, and, and mainly the goal of other people in this psychological landscape is to critique each other's experiences and are very able to change the intuitions of others. Now, that's not to say that ration, our own rationality can't be turned inward on our, um, on our intuitions because it, it does very often happen that way. And, um, you know, the rational mind has the ability to change the intuitional mind. But he uses a, a metaphor of an elephant and a rider. The rider is right, the yeah. rider is the is the rational mind. The elephant is the in, the intuitional mind. The habits, the intuition, exactly. the desires, the and the, the whole human. The elephant is going forward full blast, and the rider has a little bit of control over it. You know, he can whack him with a stick and say, "Go this way, go this way, go this way, go this way," and it's eh. it's gonna it's gonna change a little bit. But you know, it would be much easier for the elephant to change direction if another elephant's coming from another way. Right. So you're you're in this lab to get back yes. to your story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're doing this research and you're you're learning a lot more about psychology and and it, you know everything that goes along with right. groups and thought process and everything else and you would describe coming to a point where they had had a lecture series and there's yeah. a very formative part there for Yeah you. so as I'm reading a lot the analytical part of my mind is continually eroding at and looking at my assumptions about the nature of reality Right I've been going through that for like 3 years Yeah so uh, we had this uh, you know spirituality and everyday life lecture series with a bunch of different leaders from around uh, faith leaders from around the community mainly uh reverend doctors who had uh gotten their doctorate in divinity and done studies and and so they would come in and talk about their dissertations mm-hmm. um and this one particular one was on uh the subject of science and religion and faith and to see if they could coexist or not it was a rabbi in this case. This rabbi's take was that as we study science, we get to know God a little bit better. But God's not a part of the world. This is a this is a um, this is a theology that that puts God directly out of our universal reality, right? Outside of space and time, essentially. Which, if I'm going with a version of God, it, it seems most rational. Yeah. To be like, yeah, there's no way you're gonna find it here. 
objectively. Right. It's outside of space and time. Yeah. Let's move on. As we study, as we use science to study nature, we start to get a shadow of what God is because everything that God isn't is nature. And in seeing the completeness of the creation, we get a shadow of what God is. And so we're able to know God in a very, almost as if you're looking in a mirror. And I just thought that was so beautiful. That's, there's that's some, quite the there's explanation. some wisdom there of yeah. that explanation acknowledges the shortcomings of our ability of objectivity to put a stamp on God or put God in a box and put it on the shelf. Right. Uh, but David you kind of pushed him on this a little bit. And what David basically said was, um, he's like, okay, that's that's good. But what about, you know, the concept and, and evolutionary theory around religion and that religion itself and concepts of God are themselves subject to cultural evolution and natural selection and that religion is just this social construct that has helped humans evolve and cooperate. Uh, that question really struck me. I was like, oh, God. What's he going to say to that? And so I'm looking at him. I'm looking at the rabbi, and the rabbi's like, well, we just don't believe that. And my heart sank, like, to the bottom of my stomach. And the seminar essentially ended at that point, and a couple things happened. I, uh, you know, looking back on what was happening physiologically in my body was very intense. My heart rate started elevating and I started withdrawing from everybody. I was kind of getting shortness of breath. I was getting cold sweats and I walked, I kind of like rushed out, uh, you know, put my coat on and rushed out. As I'm walking towards my car in the winter air, inside my body felt as if simultaneously I was being crushed by the weight of the world, but also from the inside, there was another simultaneous pressure of explosion. So mm. I was being, cr- like, it was like the very fabric of my being was being crushed from both directions. So I know physiologically that this is, I'm having a panic attack. And I've had panic and anxiety attacks many times before and many times after, but this was something completely different. Because as I'm having this panic attack, usually I can like sit down and kind of take a few deep breaths, but I didn't do that mainly because it was the end of February and it was pretty cold. But as I'm walking, it's like the color drained from the world and everything turned to Hmm. sand and dust and kind of blew away. And I was just kind of walking in a void that didn't have a beginning and it didn't have an end and it didn't have a bottom and it didn't have a top. And I was just, I was simultaneously free falling into, and I'm, I'm just like floating and walking and not able to grab onto anything. I'm free falling as my conception of reality itself as this thing that was created by this concept that I had of God fell away to ash. And for the next couple weeks, I was in an especially dark place. I was in therapy at the time. It wasn't, it was helping a little bit as like a triage, but there was just no place that I was getting anytime soon. Um, There were a few times where I faked 
physical illness to get out of work because I just couldn't get out of bed. I withdrew from everyone. And this went on for, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to, to remember how long this exactly lasted for. You know, you had the falling out with, with your friends in the youth group. Yep. That was, seems like that was mostly a social, you know, a relationship, an immediate person to person relationship stress. Yes. You still felt like me and God are good. Yeah. But this Some, somewhat there was a little bit of there was a little bit of, of tension between God and I, right. you know. There's a little bit the of kind of uh, blowback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, and yeah. I've I've experienced that. But there was a a next level of loss that this rabbi who had so eloquently elaborated on, and then David Sloan Wilson, who's is a pinnacle of you know the writer on the elephant. He's he's a scientist. He's got a great point that you've had sitting in your head that you haven't really been able to verbalize. Yeah. But he verbalizes it. You you have in front of you the culmination of such an incredible struggle that humanity has dealt with. That uh, someone presents a great approach and option, and and it's good and it feels good. But then this this logical side comes in and and makes a great point. Uh, there's this connect, this an emotional connection to something, and then you know stand up and have a good answer for this. And it, it unfortunately in that moment just wasn't there, and you hadn't been able to personally find one as well. And it was yeah. it was almost a validation of all the doubts and everything else that you had. That exactly. just is kind of like a yes. During the philosophy of religion class I took, we read uh, Sigmund Freud's The Future of an Illusion. He kind of talks about this. God concepts act as a means of allowing us to stay in an infantile state with a father protector standing over us. Yeah, and there's there's someone waiting for you when consciousness ends. Right. You get to see everyone again. Exactly. It sounds like it hit you far more, like, immediately. With me, it's been like a, a slow leak of like color draining out of things mm-hmm. and loss of meaning. But that's a that is a good place for us to to wrap up this part of that. Your yep. journey from there to basically uh almost nihilistic rock bottom. I would say I point. was at nihilistic rock bottom. Yeah. I I'm I've just had had kind of a soft nihilistic glide to the bottom. <laughs> so <laughs> Next week tune back in and we're going to come back across Taylor's story in in a far more academic sense, kind of pulling apart each part of those and looking at it through an evolutionary theory lens as well as psychology and just uh, getting a little bit scientific on it, maybe. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah, totally. So tune in next week. Thanks so much for watching and or listening. Thank you.